everyone, Mark Lanier here. I want to thank you for joining our Bible study during coronavirus. This is number 22, and uh, when we did the first one, I thought we might do one or two. I never dreamed it would last this long, but it seems to last for some long time. And we've been going through the story on the road to Emmaus, and I'm about at the end of the story. Uh, uh, I think today with Luke 24, uh, I will probably put a signature line on this process. I got a couple others I may add to it. We're just going to see how things feel. But today we're still looking at pictures of Jesus in in the Old Testament. And it's based on the premise that when Jesus was walking on the road to Emmaus for several hours with with several of his disciples on Easter afternoon, he spent that time opening up the Old Testament scriptures to them and showing them how the Old Testament explained that Jesus would suffer, that Jesus would die, and even be resurrected. And so as we're nearing this road and as we're sort of getting close to the Emmaus city limits, for lack of a better way of saying it, I want to look at three things today. I want to start by looking at Jesus so we're, we're, we're not starting at the Old Testament and moving forward. We're going to start at the New Testament and then go backwards to Abraham from Jesus. And then we'll end by talking about what that means for us. So on this journey with these three things in mind, let's start together and look at what Jesus has to say in John chapter 8. Now this is a very interesting time where Jesus is talking in John chapter 8 with with uh, a lot of followers, but also a lot of cynics and skeptics and even enemies of his ministry. And this is the chapter where he says that you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And, and, and the people that are his enemies are fighting with him over it. And he, and he basically calls them the spawn of Satan. He says it a little bit more politely, but he says uh, that the devil's their father. And, and so they're engaged in this dialogue back and forth. We are in John 8 here. And in John 8, John 8, in John 8, we reach this point in the passage where the Jews said, aren't we right in saying, you're a Samaritan? That was a bad word. That was not politically correct. It, it, would, it would get bleeped out. In today's society, if the same word were used, if you were a Jew, if you were a Samaritan, they didn't mind it. They could call themselves Samaritans all day long. But for a Jewish person to call another Jew a Samaritan is meaning that they are to be, well, it's a statement about their heritage. It's a statement about their mother. It's a statement about their their um, correctness. It's a statement about their dignity. It's a sta- it, it, is, it is about as trashy a word as could be used. So the Jews said, aren't we right in saying you're a Samaritan and you have a demon? It's not enough for Jesus to have been a Samaritan. He had a demon too. Jesus answered and said, I don't have a demon. I'm honoring my father and you're dishonoring me. Take your insults and realize what they are. I don't care. I'm not seeking my own glory. By the way, when I told you that their question is heritage, when they call him a Samaritan, that's why Jesus is so quick to add, I'm honoring my father. This isn't a question of bad heritage on me. It's something very different. And I don't care if you dishonor me. 
because I'm not into it for my own glory. There's one who seeks my glory. I mean, Jesus gets glory. All glory and honor and praise to Jesus, but it's the Lord God, Heavenly Father, who gives it to him. Jesus isn't seeking it on his own. But the one who seeks it for him is the judge. Now, this is important that we keep in mind what he's saying here. Truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Jesus is the power of resurrection life. The Jews said to him, okay, that's proof you have a demon. You just proved it. Abraham died. The prophets died. And now you're sitting here saying, if anyone keeps my word, he won't die. So I guess you're greater than Abraham who died. I guess you're greater than the prophets who died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus said, if I glorify myself, that that doesn't count for anything. My self-bragging is nothing. My glory is nothing if I glorify myself. But it's my Father who glorifies me. Of whom you say, he is our God. The God you worship is the God who is glorifying Jesus. You just don't know him. You don't know. And that that Greek word, no, like the Hebrew word, no. It it denotes an intimacy. A relationship. Not just a head knowledge. But a a relationship. He says, "You, you don't, you're not... You're not in a relationship with God. You don't know him. You don't know what he's about. I do. If I said I don't know him, then I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it. He was glad. And the Jews said to him, uh, you're not 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. And you know, some of the Jews had to be looking at each other like, like this guy is, uh, you know, our kids when they were little would, you know, Becky would say, you don't do things like that. That's disrespectful. So our kids would say, I'm brushing my teeth and curling my hair as a way of saying the person next to him is crazy. That's about the maturity level, it seems, of, of Jesus' enemies here. But, but they, they just, they, they, they cannot fathom what he's about. So you're not 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, I want to be real clear here. Amen, amen, in, the, in the, the Greek or Aramaic. Truly, truly, it's translated, but it's not like he's saying, I want to tell you the truth, like other times he's lying. It's not that at all. He's just saying, it's, it's like, listen, listen to me. I want to be real clear here. This is it. Listen clearly. Before Abraham was, I am. At this, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. 
Um, I've talked in other places, and I don't have time to get into it in too much detail here. But this word that's this, this ego in me in, in Greek, I am, that is the Greek version of the Hebrew name for God that God gave to Moses from the burning bush. And, and it was the name of God was something a good Jew would not pronounce. It was deemed blasphemy. It violated the Ten Commandments not to take the name of the Lord God in vain. And so they stone, they get ready to stone Jesus because he's used God's name. But Jesus is God. He's able to use it. This is not a proper stoning. It's not taking it in vain. Now, this is an interesting passage to me. I find it fascinating, and I love this passage. It's one of my favorite in the Bible. Jesus has this issue with them where they say, you're not 50 years old and you've seen Father Abraham? Jesus' reply, before Abraham was, I am. You know, this idea that Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day? If we go back to the PowerPoint, when did Abraham see Jesus' day? Jesus was not playing hide and seek. It wasn't the kind of thing where there was no answer. If they had chosen to engage Jesus in further dialogue instead of stoning him, Jesus would have been able to explain to them where Abraham saw Jesus, saw the day of Jesus. They didn't engage Jesus. They continued to operate out of the frame of mind they already had, and they interpreted everything in terms of their reference points. And I got to tell you, a lot of people still do that about God today. I was talking to some friends in Nashville yesterday about the, the, the strong temptation for all of us is to create who God is in our minds, instead of studying who he is from his revelation. Let me say that again. The strong temptation for everyone is to create who we think God is or should be based upon our mind, rather than understanding God as he has revealed himself to be. So we have a tendency to say, well, uh, I don't think God would do that. Well, I, why? Because I wouldn't do that. Well, even at our best self, we're not God. And we need to always be on the lookout for trying to define things the way we see them instead of understanding things for the way God reveals them. And, and that's what the problem was here. These folks had their own mind made up. And Jesus couldn't any more dialogue with them than the man in the moon. They shut down the dialogue when they tried to stone him. And lost a marvelous opportunity to open up scripture. I don't want to lose that opportunity. So what we're going to do now, having looked at it from the perspective of Jesus, is we're going to take it the next step back, and we're going to ask this question. When did Abraham rejoice? Agalomai in, in the Greek is the word that's translated for uh, rejoiced. It means to exalt. 
uh, uh, it's it's a not just a joy, but it's an exceeding joy. It's 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 um, a great rejoicing, an exalting exaltation, I should say. And so, where do we find that in Abraham? And 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 that's the big question I want to ask. Where did Abraham? Rejoice to see Jesus' day. Now, I said Jesus wasn't playing hide-and-seek. I don't think this was the kind of dialogue where the response of Jesus would be, well, I have mystical knowledge as the Son of God who is omniscient, and I can tell you that there was a secret day where Abraham rejoiced to see me. Uh, Jesus is engaging people who knew their Torah. They knew the account of Abraham from Genesis. And, and it's within those pages, I think it's very fair and reasonable for us to try to look to see what might have been the time that Abraham rejoiced to see Jesus' day. Now, some rabbinical scholars at the time of Jesus said you'd find that answer in Genesis 15. 17 through 21. And here's what happened in Genesis 15. So here we are. We're in Genesis, the story of Abraham, Genesis 15. And as the sun goes down, a deep sleep falls on Abram. His name's not changed to Abraham until a bit later. And behold, dreadful and great darkness came and fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs, will be servants there for 400 years. That's the Egyptian time. But I'll bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and they'll come out with great possessions. They plundered the Egyptians. As for yourself, you're going to go to your fathers in peace. You'll be buried in a good old age. And they'll come back here in the fourth generation after the iniquity of the Amorites is complete. And then here's the key. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, Abram, saying to your offspring, I'll give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, blah, 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 blah. Now, the rabbis in the time of Jesus said that there must have been some mystical revelation here because God is probably talking about the Messiah. When the Messiah comes, that's when this land would be given to Abram. And so the rabbis taught that maybe this was the passage that thought of the Messiah. Not all rabbis, some rabbis. But I just don't see this as a story of Abraham rejoicing exceedingly. Uh, I don't see this as an exaltation. I don't see this as, I mean, gee, I'm really stoked. My people are going to live in bondage and slavery for 400 years in a foreign land. After I'm dead and gone 400 years later, they're going to come back and my great, 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 grandkids are going to have possession of a land. Yeah, that's a good thing. I mean, if you told me 400 years from now, somebody named Lanier is going to have a good life, I'd be glad. 
But I'm not sure that, that this measures up to exceeding joy, agalomai. I'm not sure that it, it measures up to that. So where else? Well, some people, if we go back to the PowerPoint, some people say that what it was was in heaven. That Abraham, Jesus is saying Abraham is up in heaven watching Jesus and giving his seal of approval on what Jesus was doing at the moment. Eh, I don't see that either. I don't see it in the passage. And I don't see it fairly. I mean, how do you engage Jesus in that dialogue? Well, really, Jesus. Now, when was this? Jesus says, well, right now in heaven. He's smiling and saying, yes, I agree with Jesus. That's not a real persuasive point. That's not a winning argument. So what, what, I mean, start looking at the other stories. Abraham uh, saving Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot's wife gets killed. I mean, that whole thing is not like good times. How about Hagar and Ishmael getting sent out? That's a good story. No, Hagar's not a good story. Hagar doesn't quite do it either. Where does Abraham rejoice gladly to see Jesus' day? I would suggest there's only one clear candidate. And that's Genesis chapter 22. Let's look at it together. Genesis chapter 22. And this is where he, I think, rejoiced to see the day of Jesus. All right, this is after Abraham's just uh, lost uh, Hagar and Ishmael. Uh, He's entered into a treaty with Abimelech. And uh, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham! And Abraham said, Here am I. God said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering. He arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. So Abraham said to his young men, You all stay here with the donkeys, and I and the boy will go over there and worship, and then... Come back to you. Got to sharpen my pencil for a moment. I'm running out of ink. Come back to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. He took in his hand the fire and the knife, and both of them went together. Now, while they're going, Isaac says to his father, Dad, he said, here I am. He says, behold the fire and the wood. But where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, 
together. The story continues. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand. He took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. The angel said, don't lay your hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. I know you fear God, seeing you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it's said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now, I suspect that there is no greater time in Abraham's life for him to have been rejoicing than that day. The writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews recognizes, as many people do, this was a huge issue within Judaism. What kind of God would call on Abraham to do such a thing? God must have been, um, uh, well, all sorts of, of, of descriptors are used, adjectives are used. He was uh, sick, I've read. He was demented. He was unfair. He was taunting. I mean, who would do such a thing? The writer of Hebrews in the New Testament is very clear that Abraham's faith was so great that Abraham expected God would have resurrected Isaac from the dead. Abraham was not going into this thinking his son would not return. I would suspect if Abraham thought he wasn't going to return, he wouldn't have brought the witnesses along to stay with the donkeys. He just said, y'all go on home. (laughs) He wouldn't have told those witnesses, uh, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham expected both of them to come back. His faith was so great, not simply because he was willing to do the sacrifice, but because he expected the resurrection. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. And we've got to remember, we've got 14 verses here of something that unfolded when Abraham was 100 years old. And it unfolded over a period of a number of days. And so Abraham had a lot of time to think about it and a lot of time to reflect on it. And Abraham wasn't lying to his son when he said God's going to provide for himself the lamb for burnt offering. Abraham knew God was in control and knew God would act. So within the framework of that, how is this, if we go back to the PowerPoint... Abraham rejoicing to see Jesus' day. Well, we've got in the chapel here a montage painting of this scene. You'll see the men down here with the donkeys that stayed behind. 
You'll see the altar with Isaac being bound. You'll see Abraham walking up with the fire and the, and the consternation and concern as his son is struggling with the wood to the sacrifice. You'll see the angel interrupting and stopping, pointing to the ram caught in the thicket by its horns. But you'll also see the Bethlehem star. Because this is indeed a prophetic story of Jesus. So I'd like to look at it again, but I'd like to combine it with what we understand from the New Testament now. And just take a moment and absorb this. Brent, I'm going to challenge you here, your technical wizardry. I'm going to be switching back and forth rapidly from PowerPoint to IPVO. And we're going to see how good you do. So fasten your seatbelt and let's take off together. Abraham, the only son whom you love. If we go back to the IPVO, God tested Abraham and said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac. Whom you love. That's profound. Those words are not accidental. I mean, we only have 14 verses to tell this whole story. And yet in those 14 verses are words for Abraham that God echoes with Jesus. It's John 3.16 that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And Isaac, the only son who Abraham loved, is a mirror image of the true sacrifice that God would give, which is his son whom he loved. John 15, 9, Jesus makes it real clear. Jesus says in John 15, 9, as the father... Has loved me, so I have loved you and abide in my love. Jesus is the Father's only Son, whom He loved in a very special way as God incarnate. And so when we read this, Father Abraham, in that sense, is, is. By the way, we call him Father Abraham because he's not only the father of the Jewish nation, but Abraham means our father in Hebrew. So, Father Abraham, take your son, your only son whom you love, and go, look at this next passage, to the land of Moriah. If we go back to the PowerPoint, Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is, in fact, the earlier name given to the temple and the complex in the area where Jesus was arrested, betrayed, crucified. Jerusalem is Mount Moriah. So you see, for example, in 2 Chronicles 3.1, where it talks about Solomon building the temple. The temple itself 
was built. Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. It's also where the Lord had appeared to David on the threshing floor there. That's where the temple was built. And if we've learned anything over the last three or four weeks of this class since we started with the the tabernacle and the temple, we talked about, I talked about how the temple was built based on the tabernacle. And yet this tabernacle and temple were built with the Holy of Holies being the dwelling place of God and Jesus being the curtain that would tear apart to open access to the presence of God. The body of Christ is rent in two so that humanity can go before God through the body of Christ, through the curtain. And that temple, this whole sacrifice, is built on Mount Moriah where Abraham was told. Now, God didn't say simply, go back to that Abraham story for a moment. God doesn't say simply, hey, go sacrifice your son. Look at it. God said, go to the land of Moriah on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. God had him take a three-day journey to get there. Because where it happened was important to God. Where it happened is prophetic. This isn't written down. Anybody who reads this and says, well, that must have been written after the death of Jesus to make it look like that. No, this was written long, 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 long time before the death of Jesus, before the birth of Jesus. I'm talking thousand plus years. Or even by liberal scholars, 600, 700 years. You've got this passage and it just speaks of Jesus. So Mount Moriah. So Abraham rises early in the morning. He saddles his donkey, takes the young men, cuts the wood, goes to the place. And what happens? On the third day, Abraham lifts up his eyes. The third day. Jesus was emphatic in his teaching. Over and over and over, he told people. On the third day, he would be resurrected. Look, for example, at Luke 9.22. Just one of many examples. Jesus is foretelling his death in Luke 9. He strictly charged and commanded them, don't say this to anybody, but the Son of Man's got to suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And what's the, the third day be raised? This is something that must happen. The third day is an important day. If we go back to the story. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. So if we go back to the PowerPoint, Isaac carries the wood. Now, here's an interesting note. There are four Gospels in the New Testament that tell the story of Jesus. 
The first three are called synoptic from the Greek idea. Soon means together and optic means to see. They see the story in much the same way. They tell a lot of the same stories and use a lot of the same language. Those synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then after those are written, John writes the last gospel. And I think probably for a variety of reasons, he doesn't repeat the stories of those other gospels which were going out to different audiences. What John does is he gives different supplemental information. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke will talk about how Jesus goes to the the crucifixion scene and that uh, Simon of Cyrene is found to help carry the cross. But they don't go into the detail that Jesus started carrying it. But John does. In John 18, verse 17, John explains how the process went. Excuse me, John 19, verse 17. So they took Jesus, let's get it uh, just right, and he went out bearing his own cross. Jesus carried his own wood to his own sacrifice. And John does not want that lost. John could have left it with the fact that Simon the Cyrene had carried it after Jesus had fatigued. But he wants to make it real clear because John is especially tying in to help us understand this whole idea that John gave earlier. That Jesus said Abraham saw his day and rejoiced. It's John who gives us that story. It's John who's providing us these details that link that story up so closely and so tightly. So if we go back to the PowerPoint, Isaac carries the wood just as John uses the language on carrying the wood. And then, of course, God provides the lamb. That's what Isaac is told by his dad. He says, says, uh, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So they both go together. And then at the end of the story, after the ram is caught in the thicket, Abraham calls the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it's said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Abraham was able to see the day where God would provide the sacrifice. And of course, John marries this up too. Over and over, John says, John 1.29, um, uh, Jesus is the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb that God has provided. So we have here an incredible picture We have an incredible picture of Jesus explaining how Abraham saw his day and greatly rejoiced. Now, if if Jesus had not bothered to say that, we could have still read the story. 
But Jesus wants to make sure, and John relates the story to make sure, none of us miss that connection. As, as, as clearly as John could do so, echoing language like, only son, whom he loved, carrying the wood. I, over and over and over, John wants us to not miss it, but God wants us to not miss it. That Jesus was in that scene with Abraham. So for Jesus to tell those people, as he told the people, for Jesus to say to them, in John chapter 8, again, we're in John chapter 8, the story where we started. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And this comes on the heel of an entire long dialogue where Jesus had already told him that, that, look, I'm going away, you'll seek me, you'll die in your sin. Where I'm going, you can't come. The Jews, is he going to kill himself? He says, where I'm going, you can't come. He says, Jesus said to them, you're from below, I'm from above, you're of this world. I'm not of this world. I told you, you die for your sins unless you believe that I'm he who will die for your sins. Jesus is unequivocal that he's the Lamb of God and he has been provided by God to take away the sins of the world. And Abraham had seen this coming. This is the same dialogue. This is the same conversation where you've got Abraham and Jesus saying, Abraham saw this day. This should not come as a shock to anybody. But they were so narrow in what they saw. And they only wanted to understand what reinforced what they already believed, which was that Jesus was a nutso. Or demon-possessed. And they couldn't grasp the idea that God was doing something much greater. So this gets us to us in the final PowerPoint area. I love the fact that God had a plan. I love the idea that the Bible are not just, is not just a composite of 66 random books written by unknown people over unknown millennia. But it is one coherent plan that God has set in place. If I could convince, convince you of anything at all, it would be this, that in the Bible is contained your love story and mine. That there is a God who created humanity to be in a beautiful fellowship with him. One of intimacy one of joy, and one of eternity. And rather than thriving in that relationship and growing in it, humanity threw it away to try to be like God himself and herself. To try to be their own determiner of what they can and can't do. To live as the center of their universe making their own decisions on right and wrong rather than honoring 
God's universe and God's decisions. And as soon as humanity makes that decision, humanity is severed from God and his purity and his holiness. And the sin that we're in becomes our slave master and it blinds us and it corrupts our heart and it corrupts our mind and it corrupts our actions. And try as we want, we're never as good as we should be and as we know we should be. And although we seem to feed upon ourselves and try to feed ourselves, there is constantly in us this voice that says, I'm meant for something more. Because we are. And the beauty of the love story is, even though we are this sick, diseased, dead, rotting carcass of sin, God from the very beginning had a plan of redemption. A plan where God would come in human form. And through his humanity, come back into the presence of God, pure and undriven, having died and taken on the sin and, and, and the corruption of all human flesh, but being redeemed. And God did that, John 3.16, because he so loved you and me. I don't understand how anybody could see that story and remain numb to it. I mean, you could dismiss it. You can see the story and say, well, I don't believe any of that stuff. That's all based on the Bible. Well, it's not an absurd thought that the God who would do this would also try to reveal it to us and show it to us. Spoiler alert. He told us from the beginning. But he is constantly showing it over and over and over. And we're so busy trying to live our lives like the enemies of Jesus were, where we're trying to interpret everything to uh, confirm what we already believe rather than being willing to accept this unconditional love that is more vast, more deep, more wide than anything we could ever fathom that truly answers the cry of our heart. So I want you to know that. I want you to know that love. If there's anything we can do for you, any way we can pray for you, anything we can, can do to help you, uh, uh, please email us. Uh, these emails come in to Brent Johnson and to me, and they're not shared with the world, but he and I both are diligent to pray over these things. We want to do anything we can to bless you and to help you see and experience the love of God. And I think that's more critical right now, maybe, than ever before. When so many people are trying to figure out what's going on in this world during Corona. So that's the class this Sunday. I look forward to speaking to you next Sunday, God willing. But in the meantime, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. May he give you peace. May you understand and fathom the great depths and riches of his love for you. Amen. See you next week.